Well, there are a few landmark events in church history that are particularly epoch-making. And, uh, of course, you know, the, the Holy Spirit falling upon the believers in the upper room and them bursting forth and, and, and speaking of the glories of God in unknown tongues and Peter sharing a sermon which thousands of people come to Christ. Uh, events like that really uh, are just can't be overstated. They're enormous. Well, another event like that is the one that we're going to begin looking at today. And this is now the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, uh, the man who we would eventually come to know better as Paul, the apostle. Well, we're going to see his beginnings today in Acts chapter 9. So if you've got your Bible ready, I hope you do. I actually don't have a coffee yet this morning. Instead, what I've got is a key lime uh, seltzer water. Today, that's doing the trick. So here we are. In Acts chapter 9, we're going to go ahead in verse 1 and begin to look at this enormous moment in uh, the history of the church. Now, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So let me start by just looking at where Saul is at. We, of course, had a bit of a brief detour since the persecution under Saul began back in the earlier chapters after the death of Stephen, uh, who was the first martyr of the church. Uh, we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus there, who was breathing threats against the believers. And uh, as he began to persecute them there in Jerusalem, we began to see now the gospel spread outside of Jerusalem into Samaria and Judea. And so we now, and then after that, we began to look at Philip, who was one of the six chosen to wait on the, uh, to serve the needs of those Hellenistic Jewish widows there in chapter six. Uh, well, in chapter uh, eight, we see Philip kind of the prominent uh, figure there as he brings the gospel uh, out, of Jer out of Jerusalem. And uh, ultimately, uh, Peter and John go there and uh, we see the episode with Simon the sorcerer and such. Well, now we find ourselves coming back around to Saul, who is still, as it says, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So much so that he actually gets letters from Caiaphas. Uh, and uh, this would be Caiaphas and not Annas. Uh, Annas was the high priest in the minds of many of the people, but officially Rome's guy as the high priest in Jerusalem was Caiaphas. And so, uh, of course, Annas and Caiaphas uh, have already figured prominently uh, in uh, earlier in the book of Acts when Peter and John are preaching the gospel after healing a man and uh, Annas and Caiaphas um, threaten them and, and tell them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Well, Caiaphas now has given letters to Paul to go on, or Saul of Tarsus, I should say, to go and to persecute believers around the area. And here he makes his way. Uh, when we see him now, he's on his way to Damascus. Now, Damascus figures uh, prominently in, in the scripture. We see it uh, mentioned, as we've often said in Isaiah 17, uh, potentially in regard to end times prophecy. But Damascus has the distinction of being the uh, city, uh, the, one, the, the, the oldest, most consistently inhabited city on earth. Uh, there have been people living in Damascus farther back and longer than any other city. And so uh, this is a, um, you know, it's a prominent city. And so Saul is making his way there to persecute those who have now become believers in the way as they will become known. Uh, in this particular case, they are Jews who have converted to Christ. And when we say converted, probably a better word is that they've become completed 
Jews. They have put their trust in the Messiah, who is the fulfillment of the promises given to Israel from the very beginning. And so by putting their trust in Jesus as the Messiah, they have now become recipients of that that promised Messiah that was uh, promised all the way back even to Abraham, of course, as we, even really back in Genesis 3, uh, we see the first promise. But in terms of specifically coming through the people of Israel, we see that first in Genesis 12, when uh, Abraham is told that uh, that he will become a blessing to all people. And so um, here we have now uh, Jews who have come to faith in Christ. They believe in him. And Saul is going after them. Now, Saul is particularly zealous, and we will see this in the epistles as we, uh, uh, you know, when we look at uh, Paul's writings, he refers to this period in his life when he was zealous for the law, so zealous that he persecuted the church of God. And here we see this going on. Uh, And so as he has letters to drag Christians out of their home and arrest them, Uh, Even outside of Jerusalem, now we're actually moving into the area in Syria where Damascus is situated, and he's he's got a far-reaching, in his mind, ministry. But in fact, what he's really doing is standing against the ministry of the Lord. But as uh, we sometimes see in life, even in our day, uh, sometimes those who are the most ardent proponents uh, ultimately become the most fierce proponents once they're gotten a hold of by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, uh, Saul here is about to meet Jesus as he's making his way to Damascus. So we pick it up here again in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh-oh. But you can imagine that moment for Saul. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although although his uh, eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank, clearly shaken by this experience, not just because it was a supernatural experience, but he came face to face with the realization that all of his efforts, his hatred, his fury, his vitriol, his desire to stamp out this movement was actually fighting against God. Now you can imagine what a, uh, what a, what a moment that had to be. Imagine, uh, uh, you know, for a moment, pouring yourself into the work of your life and then to find out what you've actually been doing is something wicked. And all of a sudden now you realize you have to stop doing that. Well, that would, that would shake you up. You'd wonder, how did I fall into this? How did I, was I so misled? How did I not see this before? And for three days, Saul is not able to see. He, uh, he doesn't eat or drink for those three days. We don't know if that means he was fasting or if he just was so shaken up that he just couldn't take any food for that time. But this was an enormous moment for him. Now, the episode itself where Jesus appears to him on the road, he hears the voice, he sees the light shining from heaven. And the way the language reads there, it, it seems as though Saul understood what was being said, but those with him just sort of heard a noise. Uh, they might have been able to distinguish it was a voice, but it may be that they didn't understand what was being said. But Saul did. And so Jesus literally meets him on the road, as it were, and speaks to him. And Saul very wisely listens. He is so captivated by the moment that when he hears, why are you persecuting me? 
why are you persecuting me? I'm, I'm doing your work. As he, if, he, if, he's, if he's already seen this as being God speaking to him from heaven, he's probably confused by this statement. He says, well, who are you? And Jesus responds, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Now, what that tells us is that, you know, now Saul did not literally physically persecute Jesus personally, but rather Saul persecuted Stephen. Saul persecuted Christians. And Jesus took that as a direct assault upon he himself, which ought to bring us a measure of comfort. It's kind of like, you know, if you pick on us, you're really kind of, you know, you're picking on Jesus. And so Jesus here responds by going right to the source and speaking to Saul. Now, of course, in, in God's plans and purposes, Saul always was going to come to this moment that would radically change his entire life and perspective. God had always chosen Saul for this calling, but this was the path Saul was on when Jesus uh, ultimately would meet him. Uh, Paul would refer to himself as an apostle born out of due time, uh, one that was handpicked by the Lord himself and ultimately would serve in the capacity of one who would receive the revelation of God, one who would go on to plant churches and, and, and write a third of the New Testament and have such dramatic ministry. I often wonder, you know, when we see people in our experience, in our sphere of influence, that uh, maybe we imagine like there's no way this person would ever get saved. Look how completely lost they are and how violently opposed to the gospel they really are. Um, you know, maybe it's worth taking a minute right there and not necessarily thinking that there's somebody beyond God's reach, that this person couldn't be touched by the Lord and ultimately turned around and become a servant of the king uh, rather than a servant of the enemy. And so it, it's hard for us to see it sometimes, but God is able to fully see ultimately what uh, any person is ultimately going to be. And that's because he makes a person what they ultimately will be. And Saul, we see here like a, um, you know, like a rough block that over time in that, uh, the time to come when he will spend time in that Arabian uh, wilderness with the Lord, learning the gospel from him uh, directly, we'll see that, you know, what comes out of all that is that this, this block of marble ultimately was chipped away into this beautiful servant of God who will go on to serve faithfully until he's martyred uh, some years down the road. And so, um, so he's in Jerusalem, or he's in Damascus, I should say, and uh, those who were with him brought him by the hand since he couldn't see for a full three days. He's uh, led over here into Damascus. He's in the city. Now, meanwhile, while this is happening, God is setting up somebody to go and to speak to him. And in verse uh, 10, we pick this up. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Ananias, by the way, would have been one of those who likely would have been persecuted by Paul directly, dragged out of his home and thrown into prison. Well, things have changed all of a sudden, literally all of a sudden. So again, there's a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go into the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So here's Ananias, who has a somewhat similar experience to Saul, although Ananias is already a believer. But the Lord says to Ananias in a vision, in other words, the Lord appears to Ananias, essentially, and says, hey, I have work for you to do. Not too terribly dissimilar than the other side of the coin of somebody who is a violent opposer 
suddenly being told that he's got work for him to do. Uh, and so Ananias um, says, here I am. Here I am. That's the perfect answer for any believer when the Lord calls to us. Here I am. What would you have me do? And so the Lord tells him to rise and go to this particular place on, on the street called Straight, a place, uh, a, Ju a house of a man named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, obviously, uh, but go to a house uh, of a man named Judas and look for this man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying and he's seen a vision. In other words, God also showed Saul that there would be a man named Ananias coming to see him. And so for this period of time, Saul is waiting and he's praying. He's not eating or drinking. But God is orchestrating these circumstances so that here after this three days, all of a sudden here comes a man that God had confirmed to Paul or Saul that he would send him. Uh, and so Ananias is understandably concerned at this request, though, as we see in verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to go bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now we know Paul, later on, uh, refers to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles, which he is, and we see so here. However, he's also called to go to the children of Israel as well. Now, um, I'm not picking on anybody, but sometimes we, in our effort to so specifically and rightly divide the word of truth, that sometimes we build cases farther than the New Testament might. Um, there is a, a movement within the body called dispensationalism and an ex uh, a much stronger version of it called hyperdispensationalism. Uh, Hyperdispensationalism believes that the church does not really and, and cannot really start until this period of time where Saul is converted because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, and so therefore, those that would hold the view that the church started in Acts chapter 2, which I, I tend toward that, um, that would be mistaken because the, the church was predominantly Jewish at that point. Hard to argue entirely Jewish because we don't really know that but predominantly it's Jewish until the door opens to the Gentiles. Uh, when I say that, what I mean is it doesn't mean that zero Gentiles came to believe because some proselytes who adopted Judaism out of uh, being a Gentile uh, were among those who seemed to be saved during that first message of Peter's in Acts chapter uh, 2. But, um, but there's a clear opening of the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, interestingly, under Peter not under Paul. And so whereas Paul is called the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter, therefore, would sort of be the apostle to the Jews, um, the reason I stop to make this point is because the waters are a little bit muddy in this area. It's not quite as clear-cut, uh, so pristinely uh, portrayed in this uh, circumstance as, say, like a, the view like hyperdispensationalism would, would purport. Um, in fact, Paul is the apostle of the Gentiles, but here we see in the passage, he's also called to the children of Israel as well. And so from the Lord's own mouth, he has a ministry to the Gentiles and the, Jew and the uh, Gentiles, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so this is becomes why we see uh, Paul later on, is every time he goes to town, he always goes first to the synagogue because he wants to see his countrymen according to the flesh ultimately saved, as he says they will be in, Acts chap in uh, Romans chapter 11. 
the fact that Jesus himself says that Saul was also on a ministry not only to the Gentiles but to the Jews also should be yet another evidence that God is not done with Israel. Now this is after the cross, right? This is after, nationally speaking, Israel rejected the Messiah. Yet nonetheless, God is calling Paul to a ministry to the Gentiles, but still also to the Jews. Now I, would, I, I think it's an easy case to make here in the New Testament that God is not done with the Jews. But here's yet another evidence of this, as the, as, as the Lord uh, Jesus himself was calling Saul, not only to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews. So again, not trying to stir anything up with that, but I think it just would do us well as we understand the scriptures to recognize that sometimes our sort of imposed apparatus, not, well, imposed is probably not really fair because those who would hold a, a dispense, uh, I would say probably a hyper-dispensational view, uh, would say that the text imposes these covenants and, and dispensations. Um, um, but I would suggest that our reading into the text how far these uh, divisions really go in some cases maybe is done uh, a little bit of a disservice to the fuller understanding of what God is ultimately doing. And so we just want to be a little careful about how far we push some of these things. Um, when something is clearly, clearly biblical, no doubt, and then it's easy to nail these things. But in an area like this, there's a little bit of room where we can't quite nail this one down as firmly as I think we'd like. Um, so anyway, that being said, uh, we'll go ahead and jump into the passage and, and we'll finish up to uh, verse uh, 19. Um, again, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him much, uh, how much he must suffer for the, name, uh, for the sake of my name. Uh, so Paul's ministry from the outset, I, I, again, I apologize, I probably should be saying Saul, but I have the likely just out of natural habit slip and say Paul as well referring to the same person, but Jesus, right up front, uh, has been demonstrating to Saul already, um, uh, or he is, I'm, I should say, he's going to show him that his ministry will involve suffering, and it does. He is stoned at Jerusalem, he is arrested, he's uh, forsaken by friends, he's whipped, he's shipwrecked, there's all kinds of things that Saul suffers, and he refers to these sufferings, by the way, as light afflictions. Uh, I, I find great inspiration from Saul's deep drive and desire to know the Lord. We read about this in, Ac in uh, Philippians chapter 3, where he's, he's crying, I, I guess I read, the, I get the sense he's crying out as he says these words. It, you can't tell for sure in the text because it doesn't give us the emotion. Um, but his desperate desire is that he might know Jesus. In the power of his resurrection, yes, but also even being conformed to his death. In other words, it's like saying, I want to know Jesus as deeply as I can, no matter what it costs me. Well, he would get the desire of his heart, and as a matter of fact, from the very outset of his ministry, Jesus knew and, and was going to make sure he understood that there was going to be suffering along the way. Um, but you know something? When it comes to suffering, it's something that we don't generally relish. It's not something that we, you know, should relish, per se, you know, in and of itself, you know, there's something odd about that. But at the same time, the New Testament does, and not just the New Testament, even the Old Testament, the scriptures, demonstrate time and time again that some of the richest growth that happens in a believer's life happens during times of hardship. Um, you know, um, when James talks about, you know, uh, patience ultimately having its perfect work and ultimately helping us to grow in maturity, it's not at all joy when we fall into various trials, right? Uh, 
how do you do that unless you recognize that there is benefit in those problems? There is a what may be designed or intended by the devil or any of the instruments that he might use to bring that suffering to us might be seen as a means to try and pull us down. What the Holy Spirit is telling us in Advent is that this actually becomes a tool to build us up to creating us something that couldn't otherwise be built. And I would suggest that when it comes to Saul of Tarsus, somebody who ultimately comes to Christ and then faces suffering and persecution throughout his ministry, you know, whereas the devil would have wanted us to stop him, it actually ends up fortifying him. It actually causes, because of the mindset that he has, where he has bought at a price and therefore he's not his own, and therefore he'll glorify God in his body. Well, how do you stop somebody who sees even persecution, uh, suffering, trials, tribulations? How do you stop somebody who doesn't see these as a detriment that will bring him down, but rather as uh, resources that will ultimately build him up? And that's the mindset that a believer is able to have. We're able to adopt that mindset and uh, because we understand that God is using. It's a lot like Joseph, right? When his brothers sought to do him evil in that, uh, Joseph would go on to say that if you intended for evil, God ultimately intended for good. And so um, the sufferings that come, again, we don't, you know, we're not sadistic about it. I mean, God protects us. We don't want to, we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to have to suffer. But it's important to recognize that God does intend through those things to allow us to grow. Um, you know, Paul would say in uh, his letter to the Thessalonians, you know, do things for one another's sake, right? Uh, that we understand that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we know that when God calls us, he has a certain amount of means to the end of our whole process of redemption and of redeeming. And sometimes even these things like suffering, uh, not sometimes, all the time, even suffering, can use for the heavenly purpose in our lives. Um, and so we can rejoice in that. Um, for I will show him again how much he must suffer for my uh, for the sake of my name. In verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, boy, what a comforting thing, right? Um, not persecuted Saul, not like past Saul, but brother. Um, it's interesting, I like to see as we go through the book of Acts, that the rest of the apostles were afraid of Saul because they knew he'd come to persecute them. And then Barnabas, who ultimately forms the bridge that allows Saul to be accepted by the apostles and become their ongoing member. Um, but he says, Brother Saul, in verse 17, 17, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like splendid struck me down as he regained his sight. Many rose and were baptized, and taking food, they served them. So here we see the contrast. What you crave in my name, what Jesus called me on the road, I sent you. And then here we see first that the messenger of Saul um, regains his sight and he receives, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now when we say filled with the Holy Spirit, um, it could very well be that this is the moment in which Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit for sure, but somewhere in, in, in uh, a couple times in the episode, we know that Saul has been filled with the Holy Spirit and able to, to uh, actually truly um, breathtaking ministry in the spirit of God. And of course, he was the one who preached that word uh, in the ministry of Saul to the Gentiles as well. Um, so he regains his vision, he takes food and he regains his sight, and what we then get to Things 
benevolent and, and benevolent. What a beautiful thing to see God take a hold of a life and say, I am at one point this day forward breathing his breath into your life and now beginning to express the message of God to you and your family to the world around you. said, uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, or websites, carsonclub.com, you can email us there as well, you can look for us on YouTube channel, you might go to the watching this video, uh, you can email us from the website there, carsonclub.com, you can email us on Facebook page, you can check us out there as well, we'd love to hear from you, but thanks so much for watching, and if you just uh, pray us out, let's ask the Lord to help us uh, to watch better, we just need to Father, we thank you. We're so thankful to look at the life of somebody like Paul, somebody who took anger out against you, but ultimately became uh, a servant to you so deeply that you gave him life and life to the full. Father, we just ask that you help us today. And uh, it's a difficult thing for us to do because even if it is God taking a hold of something in this life, we know that God is not going to let us down. Let our hearts be like your heart, Father, that we would just know you so completely.